0: We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel.
1: I made no delay and on the next day took my seat on the tribunal and ordered the man to be brought. When the accuser stood up, they brought no charge in the case of such evils as I supposed Rather, they had certain points of dispute with them about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. Being at a loss how to investigate these questions, I asked whether he wanted to go to Jerusalem and and be tried there regarding them. But when Paul had appealed to be kept in custody for the decision of the emperor, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. So on the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with, came with great pomp, and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in, and Festus said, King Agrippa and all who, who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving a death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him.
0: Thank you, Ashley. Good morning, Emmaus. Good to see you this morning. If we haven't met, my name is Patrick, and I'm one of the pastors here. I'm always so impressed by the first service people because we have four kids, and we never make it to the first service. So this must be like type A personality service. Um, If you're a visitor here, we're so glad that you're here. We'd love to meet you and talk more. I'll be down here after the service if you want to hear more about Emmaus, about Jesus Christ. We have a connect table out in the lobby where we can I'll let you know more about our church. One of our former pastors used to say at Emmaus, we don't have any gimmicks for you. All we have is Jesus Christ. That's really what we have for you even this morning. Every week, we want to lift high the name of Jesus Christ, and that's all we do. We don't have a show for you. We have the gospel of Jesus Christ, and that's really what we're all about at Emmaus. Uh, For members, remember that on November 13th, we do have a members meeting from 4 to 6 or 6.30. yeah. 630. Um, That's an important members meeting. We're going to have a reception for the Hedgers. Afterwards, we're going to talk about the future of the church. We're going to welcome new members. So please just put that on your calendar even now. You can pull out your phone. Just put that on your calendar to remind yourself that we're having that on November 13th. One final announcement. Uh, On November 6th, which is next week, we are having Volunteer Sunday, So Ruthie Cantrell is putting that together and out in the second lobby. I didn't know what the second lobby was, but the second lobby is the lobby to the left of the initial lobby when you come in. We're going to have some of our directors and leaders of different ministries out there, and they're going to explain to you what we do in terms of serving the church. And so if you haven't gotten involved in terms of helping out and serving in one area, that would be a great Sunday, honestly, for you to just sign up and hear more about the different ministries. We have production, we have kids, we have hospitality, we have a ton of different areas that you can help serve. So remember, November 6th in the second lobby, and that's between the services, so we can kind of gather everyone. So if you want to hear more about our different ministries between the services, go into that second lobby. There might be a Han Solo out there, R2-D2, I don't even quite remember, but just follow Han Solo over there, and you'll find it. We are in Acts 25, still plugging through the book of Acts. Uh, started a long time ago, and this is what we call another trial. We have one more week of trials of Paul, but this is another trial, so we're in Acts 25, so if you haven't turned there yet, please do. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump right into it. Let's pray. Father, we pray as we open your word that you would meet us, that the Spirit would rest upon us. We pray that we would be those who are ready to receive this word. Father, if our hearts are hard... We pray that you would soften them even now. Father, we pray that we would see Jesus Christ in this text and that we'd want to follow him more and become like him more. We pray all this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. So I want to begin with two stories. The first one comes when I was in middle school. So I was going through the line in middle school to get my hot lunch, and this was actually a special day for me. Because usually my parents made me bring a cold lunch. And so that my mom would pack me a sandwich, which was very nice, but she'd also throw some carrots into that bag. And it wasn't always the greatest experience because my friends had their hot lunches and I had my cold lunches. But every Friday, every Friday, they said, you can get your hot lunch today. So I was very excited. So I was going through the line to get my hot lunch, and it was pizza that day. And you know how school pizza works. Uh, It's very flat, and it's very square, and it looks and tastes like cardboard. But I was still very excited to get my hot pizza. I also got my milk bag at our school at that point. We didn't even have milk boxes. We had milk bags. Yes, we did pop them occasionally and get in trouble for that, but that's a story for another day. So I went to check out, and I gave the lady $5. Uh, We weren't very high-tech when I was in middle school, so I had to actually bring cash to buy my lunch, gave the lady $5, she gave me my change, and I immediately noticed she gave me too much back. She gave me like a dollar back, and I noticed it right away, but I didn't really know what to do, so I went and I sat down. I sat down and started eating my cardboard pizza, which was excellent that day, and then I got up and I was like, you know what, I need to go give this dollar back. Like, she obviously gave me too much change, and so I went and I gave it back, and she just said, thank you for being so honest. Thank you for being so honest. She took the dollar back, and, you know, I probably felt pretty good about myself that day. Fast forward to high school. I'm in high school. I have a job. I'm not doing that well in my relationship with the Lord. And I went out to eat with some friends at a place that likes Smashburger or Steak and Shake or something like that. And we went to get burgers, and um, I went up to order a burger and the guy, was, we were talking, the guy who was checking me out, he didn't look like he liked showers very much, but he was talking about the burgers that they made. And um, I gave him a 20, and I ordered my burger, and he gave me $25 back <laughs> and some change. And I was pretty excited because I was poor. <laughs> I was like, this is a huge win. I've gone, I've ordered a burger, and I've made money at this restaurant. This is amazing. So I went down, and I sat with my friends, and I told them. I said, hey, look, I made money. (laughs) Like I walked into this establishment, and I think he meant to give me a 10 back with a 5 and some change, but he gave me a 20 and a 5 and some change. And so I bragged to my friends, and I walked out, and we went on and had a great day. And that was the end of that story. I realize these stories are somewhat silly, but they do introduce us to our theme of the passage today, what we call integrity. Blamelessness or innocence? Integrity, blamelessness, or innocence? In the first story, I had integrity and was innocent. In the second, I wasn't. So we see a lot of different things in our text before us today, and I could go all over the place, but Acts 25 especially focuses on Paul's integrity or innocence. As a part of his witness. So, integrity or blamelessness simply means doing what you ought to do, even if it costs you. Doing what you ought to do, even if it costs you. And my hope is that as we go through this text, you will be encouraged to be blameless, to be innocent, to be a person of integrity for the sake of your witness. Your witness is not about just what you say about Jesus Christ but how you act, who you are as a person. So to see this theme, I simply want to walk through the text, especially pointing out this theme to you, and then towards the end, I'm going to pause and just give some further reflections on our own integrity, blamelessness, and innocence as a part of our witness. So let's begin by backing up one verse in our text and setting the context. In Luke, or in Acts, 24, verse 27, Luke states this. So one verse before verse, chapter 25. After two years had passed, Festus succeeded Felix. And because Felix wanted to do the Jews a favor, he left Paul in prison. Now 25.1. Now, three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So we come now, as I said, to another trial. There's four trials here. And this is the third phase of the four trials of Paul. And if you remember, how did we get here? Paul, in chapter 13, was sent to be a missionary to the Gentiles. And we walked through all of his different, his three missionary journeys. But towards the end of his third missionary journey, he says, I've got to go to Jerusalem. And remember, people were predicting, it's not going to go well for you in Jerusalem. You're going to be arrested. And that's exactly what happens. Paul goes into the temple, and he's arrested. And what happens after that is he stands before various trials. In chapter 23, he stands before the Jewish council. That was the time, remember, when they slapped him across the face, and he retorted back to them. Then our previous chapter, he stood before Felix, a Roman governor, in chapter 24. And what we learn here is that Felix left Paul in prison for two years. And we heard last week he did it. Why? He wanted to do the Jews a favor, and he wanted to get a bribe out of Paul. So Paul's just sitting there. He's waiting, and a new governor comes. Felix is gone, and Festus comes into power. And Festus, as he comes into power, what does he have to do? He has to clean up Felix's trash. <laughs> He's like, who are the prisoners that are left? What am I supposed to do with them? Hey, there's this guy named Paul, and I've got to deal with this case. Because Felix didn't do anything about him. He just left him in prison. So as Festus rises up into power, his first job, one of his first jobs, is to deal with what Felix left over, and Paul is one of those prisoners. So in our chapter before us, there are basically three scenes. First, in verses 1 through 5, there's a planned ambush, but Paul escapes. Second, in verses 6 through 12, there's a brief, very brief trial before Festus. That's in verses 6 through 12. Third, in 13 through 27, there's a new guest that Paul stands before. In all of these, we see that Paul is innocent. He's blameless. He's a man of integrity. So let's look at the first scene, verses 1 through 5. As we step into this first section, we see that people are not treating Paul fairly. They're not treating Paul fairly. You can see this in verses 2 through 3. While Festus is the new governor, guess what happens? Again and again, the same thing happens. Verses 2, it says, The chief priests and the leaders of the Jews presented their case against against Paul to him, to Festus. And they appealed asking for a favor against Paul that Festus should summon him to Jerusalem. They were, in fact, preparing an ambush along the road to kill him. So here's what's happening. A new governor is in charge, and the Jews come to him, and they say, hey, we want to try him in Jerusalem. We don't want to do it in Caesarea where you are. And really what they're wanting to do is they're wanting to ambush Paul along the way and kill him. Now, think about this situation, This new ruler is in place, and the Jews show up again. It's like Groundhog Day. Every day, it's the same thing. They're here. They're here. But think about the timing. It's been two years. Do you think the bad blood maybe had stopped after two years? (laughs) that the Jews would have been like, ah, you know what? Forget about him. Like, he's, he's had enough punishment now. No, they hold on to this grudge for two years. And when the next governor comes, they say, ah, a new opportunity. Felix won't do anything about this man. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to try to get him to transfer Paul. And why would they do that? Why would they want him to transfer Paul? Because they know they can't win this case. Right? They know they can't win it. And so if we get, can get him to transfer Paul over here, let's just ambush him and kill him. So do you see what they're trying to do? These Jews are corrupt They're deceitful. They're the opposite of what Paul is. These Jews are supposed to be following the Torah that says every person deserves a fair trial. And they're like, no, we just want to ambush him. We want to get rid of this man because they know he's innocent. He's not being treated fairly. Now, Festus, we don't know why, but Festus says, nope, not doing that. You got to come up to Caesarea where I am. You can try him there. Now, a lot of times, new governors would do what the people wanted initially at the beginning to gain good favor. But I think he recognizes what the Jews are trying to do. They're trying to kind of come over him. So he's like, no, I'm in charge here. You come to me. You come present your case to me in Caesarea. We're not transferring him to Jerusalem. I want to hear it up here. So that moves us to the next section of our text. Verses 6 through 12 then briefly recounts Paul's trial before Festus. In verse 6 it says Festus takes his seat on the tribunal. That's the judgment seat. Now they just pause really quick. You actually hear that word 3 to 4 times in this text, and I think Luke is trying to tell you something that tribunal is the judgment seat and what does Paul write about who sits on the judgment seat? <laughs> Jesus Christ. So I think Luke is actually telling you although Festus thinks he sits on the judgment seat, who ultimately is going to judge Paul? Jesus Christ. And Paul knows I'm innocent before Jesus Christ. So Rome, you can say what you want. Jewish leaders, you can say what you want. But the final judge will come and he will vindicate me. So they keep saying he sat down on the tribunal. He sat down on the tribunal. And Christians should say, nope, there's one above him who sits down on the tribunal. So he sits down on the judgment seat, though. Festus does. And he orders that Paul be brought before him. Verse 7 says the Jews came and they made their charges against Paul. So they agree, okay, we'll go up to Caesarea. Let's make our charges against Paul. Verse 7 says this. When he arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him and brought many serious charges. But notice what Luke says at the end of verse 7. That they were not able to prove. So they had all these accusations against him, but they couldn't prove any of them. And Festus knows it. Paul is innocent. Just like Felix knew Paul was innocent, Festus knows he's innocent. And maybe the most important verse in this text is the next one. Maybe the most important verse in all of the trials is the next one. 25 verse 8. Here's a one-verse summary of Paul's defense. Basically, Luke, like us, might be getting a little tired of the trials, so he's not going to give us a long summary of it. And he says, like, let me just compact Paul's defense into one verse. Let me just say really briefly what Paul says in response. And this is what he says in 25.8. Then Paul made his defense. Neither against the Jewish law, says Paul, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, Have I sinned in any way? (laughs) Notice what Paul says here. I have done nothing wrong. Against what? The Jewish law? Yes, I'm a missionary to the Gentiles. But I'm for the Jewish law. Against the temple? I believe in the temple and the power of the temple. And I did not bring Gentiles into the temple. Nor against Caesar have I done anything. I'm not against Caesar at all. This is the same Paul that says, submit to the governing authorities, right? I haven't done anything against any of these people. I am innocent in every way. And in some ways, we look back through Acts and we're like, how can that be true? Remember, as Paul went from city to city to city, mob riots would arise. But who started those? Look back at those texts. It was always the Jews or the people of the town that started that. It was never Paul who started the riot. And so although there was turmoil, as Paul would go from place to place, it wasn't Paul's fault. He is innocent of both religious and political sedition. He says, Festus, here's my defense. I've done nothing wrong. I am blameless. I am a man of integrity. In verses 9 through 10, Festus asked Paul, Do you want to go to Jerusalem to be tried then? But Paul knows he won't get a fair trial there. Paul knows where he ought to be tried. He even says at the end of verse 10 and 11, he says this again. It's just a summary of what he just said. I have done no wrong to the Jews. I've done nothing wrong. As even you yourself know very well, Festus, you know I haven't done anything wrong. They can't prove any of the charges against me. If then I did anything wrong and am deserving of death, I'm not trying to escape death. In other words, notice what Paul does there. If I've done anything, fine. I'm willing to be punished for it. But I haven't done anything wrong. But if there is nothing to what these men accuse me of, no one can give me up to them. You know what you're trying to do. If you give me up to them, they're going to condemn me and falsely. So then what does he say? I appeal to Caesar. He throws down the ace card. He says, if you won't try me fairly, if the Jews won't try me fairly, send me up the ladder. I mean, this is the modern day, like, take it to the Supreme Court. (laughs) Like, I am willing to take my case up. If you're not going to do anything about it, he appeals to the highest court. And this is so neat because remember... What did Jesus tell him in Acts nine fifteen? You will be my witnesses before the Gentiles, before Israel, and before who? Kings, kings. So he's going before the emperor. How is he going to get to Rome? Now, it's not going to happen for a little bit. We have a few chapters before he gets to Rome. But this is how he gets to Rome. He himself has to appeal to Caesar. So Festus agrees. In verse 12, he says, To Caesar you have appealed... To Caesar you shall go. Jesus said Paul would witness before kings, and here Paul goes. Final section of our text, verses 13 through 27. The last section of this trial, Paul stands before Festus, and a new guest is introduced, King Agrippa and Bernice. And it's important for you to know who this is. Agrippa is the grandson of Herod the Great, who tried to murder Jesus and actually killed John the Baptist. His father was the Herod who killed James in Acts 12. So is this going to go well for Paul as the next Agrippa Herod comes before him? Not only that, but Bernice is his sister who he's living with. Remember why John the Baptist was killed? He critiqued Herod's marriage. So you've got, just setting the scene, you've got King Herod Agrippa and Bernice coming before him, and he says, yeah, I'd love to hear about this case. And as Festus talks to Agrippa, they basically summarize what we already know in verses 13 through 21. It's basically a repeat of everything we already know. But most importantly, Festus gives his view of the trial. So we get into Festus's head now. We've seen Paul's defense. We've seen what people are trying to do to Paul. And Festus is talking to Agrippa, and we get a little picture into what Festus is thinking about Paul. So look at verses uh, 18 through 19. Look at what Festus says here. He's telling Agrippa, okay, here's the narrative. When the accusers stood up, the Jews stood up, they brought no charge in his case of such evils as I supposed I I, I thought this guy, left over from Felix for two years, man, he's going to be a really bad guy. They can't prove any of it. Rather, they had certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus. I don't know anything about this guy. In the text, it says Festus has no knowledge of the way. Well, Felix did know something about Christianity. Festus is like, I don't, this guy, Jesus, who is dead, And Paul asserted he was alive. So we've seen this in the text again and again. Paul stands before them and says, my confession is that I am on trial for the resurrection of the dead, for the resurrection of Jesus. If you want to accuse me of something, that's what you can accuse me of. And Festus, a Roman governor, is like, I don't know what to do with that. I I don't think he's done anything wrong. He's just making this crazy claim. So what do I do here, Agrippa? Festus essentially says, I can't find anything wrong with this guy. So King Agrippa says, I want to hear him out. Let me hear what he has to say. And the rest of the story is about King Agrippa hearing Paul. He hears what Paul has to say. And much of that is actually found in chapter 26, which is next week. But our text ends with Festus describing the pickle he is in to Agrippa in verses 26 through 27. So notice what Festus says. I love this. This is a great way to end. He says, Uh, Festus says to Agrippa, I I don't have anything definite to write to my Lord about him, to Caesar. (laughs) So he appealed to Caesar. I'm supposed to send him to Caesar. But I need to do a briefing. (laughs) And I don't know what to say. Therefore, I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. I don't know what to say about him. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate indicate the charges against him. Festus basically says, I need to write to Caesar to let him know. He's like my boss. Like if it doesn't go well with me and Caesar, I'm done, right? And I need to tell him what's going on with Paul, but I don't know what to say. Hey, Caesar, um, here's this Jewish guy and uh, I don't really know what he's done wrong, but I hope you can see to it and try this trial fairly. Yep, see you, bye. No, that, that's not how you do a brief, right? you got to outline the charges against him and say, I don't know how to deal with this. And Festus says, I don't know what to write. Agrippa, help me out here. And we just need to step back and realize what has happened here. Paul, a solitary Jewish figure. Even look at verse 23 um, of chapter 25. I love this line. He says, the next day Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the auditorium with the military commanders and the prominent men of the city. So there's this man who's been stuck in prison, right? His hair is probably disheveled. His beard has grown out. He's not wearing a lot of great clothes, right? He's been in prison for a long time. And here comes a king with great pomp, and they bring in the military, and he's standing all by himself. But the way that Luke paints this picture is what? They don't know what to do with him. Rome is completely confounded by this man. The power of Rome stands against this solitary figure, and they have no idea what to do with him. By the character he brings, by his conviction, by the clarity of his truth, they are condemned, and he stands as a bright light in the midst of darkness. Who has power in this situation? Rome has all the power in a worldly sense. But Paul has the power of the gospel with him. And so he stands before Rome and they're shrugging their shoulders and he knows exactly what is happening. I'm going to Rome and I'm going to preach before Caesar. You guys are pawns. You think I'm the pawn here? You guys are pawns in the plan of God. And that is how our text ends. It ends with Paul standing there They know that Paul is innocent. And that's the major point of our text. You've seen it again and again. In the first section, Paul is blameless while the Jews seek to kill him. In the second part of our text, Paul says, I've done nothing wrong. In the third part of the text, Festus and even Grippa are like, we don't don't really know what to do with this guy. We don't have any charges against him. He is blameless. He is innocent. He is a man of integrity and that's the point I just want to press home in our final section here with you this morning. Your integrity, your blamelessness, your innocence is part of your witness to the world, just like Paul. As Jesus said, we are called to be what? The light of the world. Or as Peter said, he said, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Keep your conduct among Non Christians, honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, notice Paul's just riffing, I mean, Peter's just riffing on this. When they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. They will speak against you as evildoers, but when they see your good deeds, they will be confounded. They won't know what to say about you. So let me just apply this to two areas in our lives, two spheres to think about. First, integrity in waiting, blamelessness in waiting. Maybe one of the hardest places to be a person of integrity is when you feel like you are waiting, when you feel like you are waiting. Maybe you're in school, you're waiting for that position. Maybe you're a stay-at-home mom, and really you've put your whole career on hold, and you just feel like your whole life is kind of waiting for the baby to wake up, and you don't even know, like, what am I doing here? Or you're stuck in a job, waiting for the next opportunity. Or maybe you're a young adult, and you're waiting for more freedom and more responsibility. Or you're in a marriage, and you're just waiting for it to get better. Or you're stuck in sin, and you're just waiting and waiting for victory. Well, in the midst of waiting, Paul is faithful. Paul is faithful. For two years, for two years, he was left in prison. I mean, you just have to think about this. He could have bribed Felix. Felix wanted that. He's like, all right. You know, you you can see yourself start to reason a little bit, or maybe Paul reason, like, I am a missionary to the Gentiles. I have done a lot of work. I have planted many churches. I think God would overlook a slight bribe so I can keep doing God's work, right? You hear, like, he. I have to imagine Paul was like trying to think, God, why do you have me stuck here? I have been called to be your instrument to witness to the nations, and you've got me stuck in prison for two years, more than two years. What are you doing? What are you doing with my life? I don't get it. But in the midst of waiting, Paul is blameless because he recognizes his whole life is part of his witness. It's even how he acts when he's in prison. It's even how he acts while he is under trial, which raises the question for us when God says, pause. When God says, I'm going to make you stay here a while, (laughs) and you don't understand yet why. I'm going to make you sit here. When you feel like your life has been put on hold, are you blameless? Are you faithful? Are you a person of integrity? One of the best pieces of advice I've heard about faithfulness and integrity is the command to look down at your feet. Look down at your feet. Yes, some of you need new Nikes, but that's not the point here. Look down at your feet and recognize where God has placed you. And I'd even ask you right now, look to your right, Look to your left. This is where God has placed you right now. And think about your neighborhood. Who's your neighbor on your right and your left or behind you in front of you? This is where God has called you to be faithful. He might move you on at some point, but right now, this is where you are. And Paul must have been looking down like, what am I doing here? Why am I in prison again and again and again when I've done nothing wrong? And God just says, be faithful. Be blameless. Keep going. I've got something that I'm doing with your life. You might feel like you are in prison, but when God says wait, you are called to be faithful in that moment. And many times, this is the great thing, many times this is where God loves to work, when you feel like you're waiting. (laughs) When you feel like you're waiting, when everything else seems like it has stopped, that's when he loves to kick things into high gear because you know it's not about you anymore. And that's exactly what happens with Paul. Paul waited, and it was from this position of faithfulness that he would gain an audience with who? The commander of the known world at that time. He's going to speak before him and share the good news of Jesus Christ. Not only that, it's from this position in prison, maybe not this prison, but the prison in Rome that he is going to write what? The prison epistles. Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon. We have these books. Paul must have been thinking, I want to do something big for you. And God's like, yeah, I've, I've got a better plan for you. You are going to do something big for me. You're going to stand before Caesar and you're going to write letters that Christians throughout the centuries are going to read. You think you have a big plan for your life to go and plan all these churches? I've got something for you. Now sit and wait and write. Write letters. You see how God loves to work? Paul doesn't understand this. He doesn't understand how these letters are going to probably be preserved through the centuries, but they are, and we benefit from them. So be faithful when you feel like you are waiting. God loves to work in that time. Second, we need to have integrity in suffering. Paul is a man of integrity under deep suffering and mistreatment. He's been locked up for two years for doing nothing wrong. And they're now attacking him again. They're even trying to ambush him and kill him. They have their swords drawn against him. And guess what? Christian, Jesus promised, you too will suffer. You will suffer just like Jesus suffered. This might simply be because of the brokenness of this world. Or like Paul, the world might come after you. That's that's what's happening in this text. The world is coming after him. Rome's coming after him. The Jews are coming after him. And they are accusing him again and again and again of things they cannot prove. So when you post that thing on social media and the world raises their pitchforks against you, when you say that thing in class or at work that is not socially acceptable anymore, they might come after you. But Paul says, you must be ready to be blameless to be a person of integrity, to have an answer ready, to bless instead of curse, to not repay evil for evil. Notice Paul doesn't repay evil for evil. He just defends himself and says, I've done nothing wrong. Now bring me to the next court. He doesn't fly off the rails at them and says, yeah, but what about you? You're corrupt. No, he just stands there and he takes it. He says, I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing wrong. I've done nothing wrong. When Corey Tenboom and her sister Betsy were in the concentration camps during World War II, Betsy, the sister of Corey Tenboom, was becoming frail and weak. You could see her ribs, her strength was failing. She was required to do manual labor in the concentration camps, and one day she kindly asked her guard not to give her more work than she was able to do. She wasn't getting fed enough. She could barely do manual labor. The guard flashed back. You don't decide what I what you do, I decide. At that, the guard brutally beat Betsy. Corey, her sister, watched this, helpless and totally enraged. When the guard left, Corey ran to Betsy, who had blood all over her face. Corey was furious, and Betsy looked up at her and said, No, don't hate Corey. You must love and forgive. Corey knew, though, she was unable to. That night she went for a walk and told the Lord, I can't forgive that guard. He beat my sister. I can't forgive him. The Lord reminded her of Romans 5:5, which says this: God's love has been poured out into our hearts. Don't you love that image? It's like a cup. God's love is just poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, which has been given to us. Corey knew that she was unable to forgive that guard, but the Lord in her was able to do so. The Holy Spirit stirred in her love that she didn't have. She said, Lord, I don't have that love. You must give me that love. And that's what this text is all about, isn't it? Not repaying evil for evil being blameless and innocent. And again, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 13 through 18, basically summarize Acts 25. I'm, 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 I have it on the screen up here because it's a little bit of a longer text, but I just want to read this to you. And notice how it intersects with Acts 25. It says, who then will harm you if you are devoted to what is good? <laughs> well, Paul's like, <laughs> I got a lot of people Unfortunately, I'm devoted to what is good, and I'm being harmed. But notice what Peter keeps on saying. But even, oh yes, you might suffer, but even if you should suffer for righteousness, you are blessed. Do not fear them. Do not fear them or be intimidated. Is Paul intimidated? No. No. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, ready at all times to give a defense. These are Paul's defenses. That's the same word. Apology. To give a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, notice this. Do this with gentleness and respect. Keeping a clear conscience. So that when you are accused, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Who's put to shame in this text? The Roman governors, the Jews, not Paul. They're like, we don't know what to do. They're put to shame because of his good conduct. Now, notice what Peter says. For it is better to suffer for doing good. For doing good. If that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered for sins once for all the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. In conclusion, just let me ask you this. If the world was to see your life as a book, and if they read it, everything in your life, would they say, I find no wrong in this person. I find no wrong in this person. And if we're honest with ourselves, what's our answer? No, That makes us feel guilty, doesn't it? We don't want people to see our life as a book. And we recognize we have failed here. And if you're not a Christian here, you might be thinking, man, this is why the church is so hypocritical. You talk about integrity and blamelessness, and all I see in the church is hypocrisy. All I see in the church is hypocrisy. Well, let me let you in on a secret. We will always fail. We will always fail. That is not why we are here the great truth of Christianity is that we are gathered here not because we are so great, not because we are blameless, but because Jesus Christ is the blameless and innocent one. This text is a call to faithfulness. I don't want to lessen that. It is a call for action, but it's also set in the larger storyline of the Bible. And it's important to remember that in all these trials, guess who Paul's imitating? Jesus Christ who also was put under trial. Why does Luke spend so much time? I mean, we're up here kind of complaining, another trial, another trial, another trial. Another. Why? Luke, why, why don't, tell us more about Paul's escapades and those fun riots and all those things that are happening. like, why tell us so much time, take so much time on these trials? Because he's imitating Jesus. Because he's imitating Jesus. And in Jesus's trial in Luke, the same author Jesus is also declared innocent. Four times, maybe more than four times. When Pilate examines Jesus, the Roman governor, he says, I find no guilt in this man. Herod, after examining Jesus, sends him back to Pilate and he says, he's done nothing deserving death. Notice it's just a replay of the trials we've seen with Jesus. The centurion, after Jesus has been crucified, most of the time we think the centurion says what? Truly this man was the son of God. What does he say in Luke? Look at the text again. In 23, 47, he says, truly this man is innocent or righteous. In Luke, there's a slightly different spin on it. Notice Luke is emphasizing Jesus Christ is the righteous and innocent one. And then the thief on the cross, he affirms that they deserve to be on the cross, but he says, this man, this man has done nothing wrong. Christian, your hope is not in your blamelessness, your integrity, or in your innocence, but that this man, that this man has done nothing wrong. Our hope is in him, in the bloody and broken Savior who stood there perfectly blameless. On our behalf. And Paul knows that. And that drives him to be innocent and blameless. The great truth of Christianity is that when your book, your life is opened as a book, it's full of things that you are ashamed of. And it's much worse than actually people think. But the other great truth of Christianity is that God loves sinners. God loves sinners. And he has loved sinners so much that he has wiped those pages clean by the sending of Jesus Christ. And he said, when you are not innocent and blameless, I will take that on myself. Because I am perfectly innocent and blameless. And you can have my righteousness in exchange for your unrighteousness. That's the message of Christianity. That we all stand under trial and we are actually guilty, but Jesus Christ is the righteous one. This same Paul, he wrote this in 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made the one who did not know sin, Jesus did not know sin, to be sin for us. So that in him, in Jesus, we might become what? The righteousness of God. You have become the righteousness of God if you are in Jesus Christ. That is your hope. That is your hope in this man who has done nothing wrong. Christian, part of your witness is being blameless and innocent before the world. But your main witness is pointing to the ultimate innocent one who died on the cross for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For what an example Paul sets in following Jesus Christ. And we pray that we would be those who also seek to follow you in these ways. Oh, God, we need the help of your spirit. We need your strength because when we are weak, you are strong. Paul was a man of much weakness here, but in his weakness, your strength was shown. We thank you for this example. And we pray for strength to walk in it. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we come now appropriately to communion where we eat and drink, remembering that while we are not innocent, our Savior is. Our Savior is. He died not because of his own sin, but because of our sin. But he was also raised to life. When we take of him in this meal, we declare he is our righteousness. He is our hope. His blood covers all of our sins. And that is our hope. As I said at the beginning, we don't have anything to give you but Jesus Christ. No gimmicks, no show, just Jesus Christ. And that's why this is a family meal. If you're not a Christian, we are so glad that you are here. But this meal is also for those who have bowed the knee to Jesus, who have said, I am unrighteous, and I take his righteousness as my own. And if you haven't, we just ask you to stay in your seat and consider that, because Jesus also says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. If you call out to him even now, he will hear you, and he will save you. At Emmaus, we come down the aisle to your right, starting with the front row, moving to the back, and we take of Jesus' body and his blood, remembering what he has done for us on the cross and that we will be raised to new life. So Emmaus, come and eat remembering that Jesus Christ is your innocent and blameless Savior. Come and eat.
1: Thank you for listening to audio from Emmaus KC located in Kansas City. For more information about Emmaus KC please visit us online at www.emmauskc.com